Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Hey guys, I also wanted to tell you about Zenledger, the best tax software for cryptocurrency investors and accountants. It's fast and easy to use, and you can get all of your crypto transactions in one place so you can trade smarter and optimize your taxes. Zenledger offers 24-7 customer support by phone, email, or chat to help you get your taxes done stress-free, and it comes with a 100% money-back guarantee because they know you'll love it. Zenledger is giving an exclusive 15% discount to our listeners when you use coupon code CHAIN15. Go to zenledger.io, linked in the show notes below, to get started and get your taxes done fast. I'd like to give a quick shout out to our wonderful sponsor, eToro. The best way to be smart about trading crypto is to use the smartest trading platform. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with extraordinarily low fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice on the platform with their virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. You can create an account at b.tc slash eToro reaction, or click the link below in your show notes. Just scroll down on your phone, click the eToro link, and it'll bring you right to their website. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Brooke Pollock, who's managing partner at Hut Capital. Brooke, how's it going? Doing well, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to have someone of your caliber and your history on that you've you know dove completely into crypto. Why don't you give everybody your quick bio and where you come from? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, founder and managing partner of Hut Capital. We started the firm about a year and a half ago. But prior spent 10 years in the institutional LP world, you know, at least within LP-centric organizations, which will make more sense in a second here. But started my career working for an investment consulting firm here in Portland, Oregon, where we're based. And you know, we helped very wealthy families, at least the team that I worked on, to invest in the private markets as LPs. So you know, it wasn't just venture, but we you know, did diligence and recommended funds you know, in the buyout space, growth equity, credit, real estate, energy, whole host of things. So kind of that broad private markets world. Uh, did that for, for a while, uh, ended up getting out of Portland, moved east, joined a firm called Hamilton Lane, which is now a public company, although it was private when I was there. And you know, Hamilton Lane, for those who aren't familiar, is a, a massive private equity advisor and asset management firm headquartered in Philadelphia. You know, they have, I think, close to half a trillion of advisory assets, about $50 billion discretionary. And, you know, their model is, is they also advise, you know, LPs on private market investing. But it is more, you know, big pensions, sovereign wealth funds, like very large pools of capital. And then also have discretionary business around, you know, fund-to-funds, secondaries, co-investments. And my time there was actually spent doing secondaries. So I worked on a team that managed a fund 
you know, buying LP secondaries from folks who need liquidity. So, uh, you know, I imagine a lot of listeners will be familiar, but for those who aren't, you know, if you're an investor in a venture capital fund, it's a liquid, you know, you can't go on your brokerage account, obviously, and sell that. So there's a whole market out there for, you know, the trading of LP interest that exists. And, you know, there's a lot of institutions who sit in the middle as intermediaries. And so it's actually a pretty large institutional market these days. So did that for a couple of years and then moved down to Baltimore, uh, joined a firm called Greensburg Associates, which is a $9 billion venture platform. You know, similarly, they have a large fund to funds business, have over time built out a large secondary and direct venture business as well. And, you know, spent about a little over four years there, you know, doing all of the above. So investing in venture funds, venture secondaries, both fund and direct and then doing you know traditional mid to later stage venture capital investing. In particular, the last year I was there, spearheaded their efforts in the blockchain space, and you know that was really out of frankly just personal interest. Um, you know, I'd been tracking the space for a long time. Went to school with a couple guys who were early in the space, and you know, kind of caught my attention early on. But for a long time, was just completely relevant for my day job. So when I started at GreenSpring, this is mid 2014. You know, started paying much closer attention to the space, and you know, over time, kind of. Got, got deeper. And then 2017 started seeing a lot of these dedicated blockchain venture funds emerge, um, where there really you know, were very few before that time. So at that point, you know, went out there, got to know all those firms, built relationships with those groups, you know, spent a lot more time on education, talking to folks in the market. And you know, through that process, it ended up spearing Greenspring's efforts in the blockchain space. And then, you know, long story short, just was so compelled by what I was, what I was seeing in that market just found it so interesting from an investment standpoint, intellectually, and you know, really, really feel like you know, if you look at a lot of the historical places over the past ten years where a lot of money has been made, you know, areas like enterprise software and marketplaces and stuff like that, you know, I feel like the, I mean, the best is kind of behind us in a certain way. You know, the, the opportunities are getting more and more niche. Uh, you know, it's a bit, becoming a, a bit saturated. Not to mention, there's obviously a ton of capital out there chasing that type of stuff these days. So, you know, really feel and, you know, obviously felt and continue to feel that, you know, blockchain was, you know, really where innovation was headed, where that's going to be the key driver of innovation over the next 10 years. And, you know, wanted to spend my full time attention on that. So left to start Hut Capital. And that was, you know, kind of mid 2018. Wow. Yeah. Your experience is incredible, especially having that caliber of experience and coming into crypto full time. I guess I have a bunch of questions around here before we dig into Hut Capital, but you know, starting at Greenspring Associates, I mean, it's a venture platform with $8 billion under AUM, and you kind of led their crypto efforts there. What was the feeling internally there? Was it you know, widely accepted at the time that you were digging into crypto? Was it something that was hostile or was it just a side activity? I'm just wondering because you know, we don't have $8 billion VC funds <laughs> uh, in crypto. Yeah, certainly. So th- there was a lot of interest internally in this space, but there's there's also a difference between you know, having interest and, you know, actually putting money to work. So, you know, Greenspring has a very broad LP base, you know, on a global basis. And, you know, they're, they're a diversified firm, right? So their, their goal is to provide broad exposure to, to venture capital and, you know, broad exposure to innovation where, you know, this is going to be a piece of it, but obviously there's a lot of other other stuff going on as well. So, you know, we did make, you know, one investment, you know, in a firm in this space, but, you know, we were not, you know, doing a whole, a whole lot of investment activity, you know, we do a lot of tracking, you know, spend a lot of time talking to funds in this space. But, you know, the other piece of it is that, you know, Greenspring has a large direct business as well. 
And you know, they're doing mid to later stage investing, so typically 10 million plus of revenue. And you know, frankly, there, there just aren't that many companies, you know, especially if you look back when I was there, you know, that were going to be investable for, for Greenspring. So on a direct basis, there wasn't frankly a whole lot to look at. But I mean, you know, there was a lot of interest among, you know, among the partners, you know, definitely tracking the space closely. But, you know, we had pretty limited uh, actual investment activity. No, that's fair. And then on Hamilton Lane, you know, you said you guys focused on conversations with, you know, pretty wealthy individuals. I think a lot of people in crypto might not have that experience. So everybody just assumes you know, if someone has a billion dollars, like they're just going to throw 10 million at crypto. It's so easy, but <laughs> it really is a hard, you know, sell. Could, can you kind of explain how your conversations and work was with ultra high net worth people in your past life versus crypto? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, when I was at CTC, you know, that's where we, we dealt with the, the very wealthy families. You know, that was from 2008 to 2011. So, I mean, at that point, you know, I mean, it was really just Bitcoin at that time, but it definitely was not at all a topic of any conversations at that early stage. But, you know, broadly speaking, just you know, interacting with a lot of groups like that. First of all, if you're, you know, if you're working with families, you know, it comes initially to, you know, familiarity, like how did they make their money? You know, if you talk, I mean, you know, some out here in the Northwest, we have a lot of families who made money in timber and real estate, for example. And, you know, they want things that they can touch and feel. And the idea of, you know, Bitcoin and digital currencies and digital assets, and even in some cases, just technology in general is a very foreign concept and, and frankly, a very difficult selling point. You know, these groups are focused on long-term wealth preservation, right? They don't need inherently to take risk in order to, you know, be successful with their, their portfolios long-term. So, you know, and similarly, their their focus is so broad. I mean, they're investing in public equities, debt, private equity, hedge funds. You know, this is like a, a very small niche area that they typically are not going to be super familiar with, you know, going into a conversation. Obviously, there's you know plenty of exceptions on that point. So, you know, you really have to convince them, you know, why it's interesting, you know, kind of talk through the background, do a lot of education and, you know, convince them that this is an area that they ha should have exposure to. And, you know, as it gets more public attention, I think people are, are coming to that realization and, you know, more and more familiar coming into conversations. You know, that's changed a lot, you know, certainly over the past three years, you know, in speaking with, with wealthy families. But, you know, there's still, you still have to convince them why they should put their capital into something that they weren't prior, you know, kind of do something different. And, you know, it's always, uh, you know, always requires a bit of motivation and convincing to, you know, to kind of work against that inertia. Yeah, it's a simple point you bring up, but I, I think it's really worthwhile is that, you know, if you're a really wealthy individual, you don't care about 50 or 100% gains on a small amount of capital. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, they obviously like uh, when things go up. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if they have yeah, a 1% yeah. allocation that goes up by 50%, that means they're one half of a percent wealthier than they were before. And, you know, if they're, let's say they're targeting high single digit annual returns, like that's, you know, that's a small portion of their annual return for one year. So, you know, it's not exactly moving the needle. So, you know, it's kind of, okay, can, you know, it's a kind of a cash 22, like in an emerging area, you know, maybe they won't want to put so much money that it's going to, you know, have significant influence in the overall portfolio, but they also want to do something that, you know, matters, right? If they're going to write a check or get involved, they want to do it in a way that, you know, is thus worth 
having exposure and, you know, a check that's worth writing, um, you know, and, and yeah, no, I definitely agree. They they want to make money. It just is, you know, it's just such a small percent, and it requires so much time and education for them to, you know, wrap their heads around at the end of the day. Yeah, certainly. And you know, if you're saying okay, you should be put, putting one percent of your portfolio in this space, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of a lot of time and education that goes into that one percent. And I mean, clearly, I I think that's a worthwhile endeavor, and that you know, folks should be doing that. But you know, of course, convincing folks who are not yet familiar with this space to spend that time and effort is you know not not always the easiest thing. No, for sure. And Brooke, let's switch over to you have an excellent post out. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. It's kind of a review of blockchain activity in the past year or 2019. And then we'll get into hut cap. But you know, you share some really interesting data here. I mean, one of the one of the points I found was that you said that blockchain is growing its market share of VC deal activity. So deals accounted for, you know, 2.8% of all VC deals up from 1.5%. That's blockchain deals as a percent of total VC deals. Mm-hmm. Seems like more than I would expect. Yeah, it's been good to see. And, you know, it was, I guess, technically it was down from 2008. But if you, know, if you look at the data from that year, it was really all an aberration because, you know, it's kind of the, on the back of the ICO bubble. And you had a lot of people who were, you know, less dedicated to the space, kind of tourists, I guess you might say, coming in and, and throwing money at things, kind of trying to play catch up on what they saw the prior year. But yeah, I mean, it's been really good to see, you know, if you look at the long-term data over the past few years, you know, consistently blockchain's market share of overall venture activity has has increased. You know, back in 2015, if you look at early stage and, and C deals, it was only you know 0.7% in 2015. It was up to 3.6% last year. So, you know, what that's a 5x increase in four years in terms of market share. And, you know, that's in an environment where, you know, there's a lot of VC activity, right? So the overall venture market is is growing, you know, at, at the same time you're seeing uh, the blockchain space grow its share. So it, you know, it has been good to see. And I kind of, you know, obviously speaks to the level of startup activity and attention being paid to the space, you know, which I think kind of, you know, kind of goes under the radar for a lot of folks. Yeah. And the other thing, I definitely agree there. And the other thing is that you said that, you know, we had over 600 blockchain deals in 2019 and that's 2.75 billion of invested capital and that's basically double the amount of deals in 2017 that definitely is a big change yeah and you know i I think similarly you know if you if people just look at the the prices of crypto okay well it went up a lot in 17 it went down in 2018 and you know obviously it's come up quite a bit you know from from its low since then but you know you haven't seen the same level of of broad you know publicity and kind of investor focus as you had back in 2017 as as prices were really going up. And, you know, I think because of that, there's less attention on the fact that, you know, I mean, if you look at startup activity, it's actually been incredibly robust despite, you know, prices not, you know, being back where they were in 2017 and early 18. Um, you know, people are much more refocused on actually building companies, you know, building startups in this space, you know, real companies you know, primarily through more, more equity oriented structures. And, you know, it's been a very healthy market environment for, for deal activity, for startups. And, you know, obviously as someone who's, you know, focusing their time on, uh, you know, venture investing in this space has been, been very good to see. And, you know, similarly, the, the valuations have actually been, you know, quite attractive as well. And, you know, if you look at valuations between the broader tech market, so just broad venture capital valuations versus venture capital valuations of, Sorry, venture capital valuations of startups in the blockchain space. You know, if you look at seed and early seed and early stage companies, you know the valuations for blockchain companies are, are meaningfully better. And 
actually, if you look at the discount of valuations between you know the broader venture capital and blockchain companies, you know, it's at its, at its largest delta, I think, since 2015. And you know, I think just kind of speaks to the fact that you know, despite the amount of money being poured into venture broadly, you know, the folks who are investing in this space are, you know, a bit more careful about dollars being deployed. Um, you know, you don't have $100 billion out there that that's going towards blockchain startups. So it's being invested a bit more prudently and, you know, with a bit more discretion than I think what you're seeing in the broader market, which obviously if you're doing early stage investing and you're on the LP side of things is a, a positive. The other question for you, Brooke, is, you know, looking at this data, obviously the investment market for blockchain and crypto is growing. VC side, valuations are good. De- number of deals is up. Total deal size um, for all these deals is up. When do you think we reach that tipping point when traditional managers, ultra high net worth, pensions, et cetera, you know, really can't ignore the space anymore? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, typically for new areas, you know, when, when you see folks reaching that tipping point of when they, you know, can't ignore anymore is effectively when they're forced to. <laughs> and, you know, it tends to be a bit lagging, right, where they see something exciting going on, you know, there are returns made, and then, you know, they want to participate in those returns. So, you know, you saw that certainly to a degree, you know, back in 2017 and 18, where crypto pricing went up significantly, that led to a lot of attention being paid. And, you know, that was kind of like that, the first wave of institutions kind of saying, okay, well, what's going on here, we need to pay attention to this. And, you know, since then, you know, it certainly has slowed down a little. And then, you know, if you look at the last year, you've seen institutions spending more and more time getting educated. Um, and with, you know, without that same, like, type of, you know, quick urgency, like, oh, my God, I'm missing out on this, because, you know, I think people realize, you know, this is a, a long term play, you know, they're, they're now taking the proper time to get educated, you know, learn about what's going on, you know, really, really get up to speed on, on this market, figure out how they're going to approach it, you know, get properly educated such that such that they can convince their investment committee or, you know, whatever committee is making decisions you know, within the organization. And, you know, you're seeing, you know, very broadly institutional LPs, you know, going through that process of, you know, getting smart in the space and figuring out how to deploy. You know, I think the question is, okay, wh- when is that going to turn into, you know, significant institutional capital coming in? And, you know, part of that is just a factor of them getting through that education process and that, you know, coming to its end result of, you know, capital getting deployed at some point. But certainly, uh, you know, I, the more you see, you know, kind of companies that are highly valued in the space, you know, the more exits you see at, at big valuations for, you know, venture-backed startups in this space, you know, the more attention you see around, you know, things like Libra and other big announcements from large companies, um, you know, that all that kind of stuff, you know, catches people's attentions and like, okay, well, maybe we should be looking more into this. So, yeah, I mean, I think it'll happen actually, you know, sooner than later. You know, I think that the education process a lot of these groups are going to, you know, the next year or two, you know, is going to lead to meaningfully more institutional capital coming into this space. And, you know, to be clear that, you know, my my focus is on, is on the venture side. So I'm not saying people are not going to, you know, come in or not come into Bitcoin specifically or crypto directly, but, you know, specifically into venture funds that are focused on this space. Hey guys, I also wanted to tell you about Zenledger, the best tax software for cryptocurrency investors and accountants. It's fast and easy to use, and you can get all of your crypto transactions in one place so you can trade smarter and optimize your taxes. Zenledger offers 24-7 customer support by phone, email, or chat to help you get your taxes done stress-free, and it comes with a 100% money-back guarantee because they know you'll love it. Zenledger is giving an exclusive 15% discount to our listeners 
when you use coupon code CHAIN15. Go to zenledger.io, linked in the show notes below, to get started and get your taxes done fast. Let's give a quick shout out to our wonderful sponsor, eToro. The best way to be smart about trading crypto is to use the smartest trading platform. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with extraordinarily low fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice on the platform with their virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. You can create an account at b.tc slash eToro reaction, or click the link below in your show notes. Just scroll down on your phone, click the eToro link, and it'll bring you right to their website. Yeah, that's a great caller. I uh, I'm biased here, but I, I definitely see that you know through our own businesses that a lot of the funds we have in firms that are on the traditional side come for the education more so than uh, more of the deep dive analysis, which is which is excellent. And Brooke, we'd be remiss not to talk about Hut Capital for the second half of the show. What is the strategy of Hut Capital? What's the philosophy? I know you kind of gave us the teaser in the intro, but I'd love to kind of dive in here and really talk about you know how you view the world and Hut Cap. Yeah, certainly. So Hut Capital is a blockchain venture fund funds and direct investment firm. You know, our, our goal as an investment firm is to provide diversified exposure to blockchain innovation and specifically to do so in a way which is lower risk and lower volatility. So, you know, the way that we do that, you know, on the last part of that, obviously as a fund of funds, you're inherently, you know, diversified that helps with both risk and volatility, of course, just by you know, you know, having a broadly uh, diversified portfolio, but you know it's it's also about what we're investing in. So that's I'd say, frankly, more important part of it. So as a fund of funds, we only invest in closed end venture funds focused on blockchain. So we we don't invest in any hedge funds. You know, no liquid strategies, no crypto trading. You know, very explicitly stay away from that side of things. So we ha- you know have a very specific focus on the fund of fund side, and what that means is that you know it's a much more equity centric strategy, right? So you know, the majority of the exposure that we provide is to startups with, you know, real revenue, real customers, real products, you know, kind of what you would see in a more traditional, you know, venture model. And then, you know, we use our relationships, all of the information that we get from being in LPs in these funds, you know, tracking the underlying portfolios in great detail, have a, you know, obviously not a lot of non-public information, given the relationships and our, our LP position, and use that to do direct investing as well. And, you know, generally speaking, the strategy there is we track the underlying portfolios of our, comp- our, of our managers in great detail, you know, figure out, you know, what are the really high performing companies um, in those portfolios. And then we try to pick off their best companies once they're a bit more mature. And, you know, that could be anywhere from a few million revenue all the way through, you know, like a pre-IPO type of deal. You know, we'll do primary, secondary investing on the direct side of it. And, you know, we will only do equity investing on on that piece of it. So we won't do any, uh, you know, token or crypto asset investing directly. So, you know, really kind of utilizing our unique position as an LP to, you know, obviously both benefit our, our LP, you know, our LP investing, but also to have a very unique competitive advantage on the direct side of things. Um, yeah. I really like the strategy, Brooke. I mean, I'm I'm a little jealous of it because, you know, you guys not only get to invest in the best VCs in the crypto space, but you get to get all of their data collectively instead of just one fund and then also make direct investments into those best companies. Yeah, and you know, people talk about like, you know, unfair competitive advantage. I mean, you know, I would kind of categorize that as an unfair competitive advantage because 
you know, I mean, on the direct side of, let's say you're doing, you know, mid to later stage direct investing. I mean, if you don't have that level of information constantly flowing in, you know, you're kind of looking out there, okay, what, what are all the companies in this space? You're basically coming into it blind, trying to map out, okay, what, what are the areas that I'm interested? Who are all the companies in those spaces? You have to then go out, get to know all those companies, figure out which ones are doing well, which ones aren't. Like, it's just a very, I mean, you know, typical, but tedious sourcing process, you know, that most, most firms have to go to. And, you know, we, we basically allow our early stage managers to do all the hard sourcing work for us. <laughs> and then, you know, kind of, we can utilize that to, uh, you know, have a significant advantage on the direct investing. Yeah, you know, because we already know these companies have been p- performing. We've been tracking it for a number of years. We get a nice warm intro from an investor or be- board member, you know, who obviously is, you know, uh, going to be helpful for us and, you know, speak well of us to, you know, as a potential investor in the company. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge, huge advantage and one that's very difficult to replicate without the fund to funds business. No, that's a, that's a killer strategy. I applaud you guys for that. And the other side of that is, when you're looking to invest in a potential VC, there's a lot that goes on. I mean, it's not just looking at their returns, right? Could you kind of walk us through your thinking on, you know, when you're reviewing a potential VC fund to invest directly into? Like, how long is that process? How tedious is it? How many meetings do you go on? What's like the relationship like after you invest as well? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, looking at venture funds and, you know, generally speaking, you know, looking at venture funds in this space is not very different than looking at venture funds more broadly. Obviously, there are certain things that you focus on more within this space, you know, just the idea of custody, for example, you know, of any token assets that are held, which, you know, you typically wouldn't have to worry about. But, you know, generally speaking, it's not not too different. So, you know, the the biggest thing for, you know, who you want to put capital with is, Okay, you know who who are those you know top top quartile of funds that are really going to drive returns, and you know typically those are the firms who are going to have the best deal flow. You know who the entrepreneurs really want to work with, who has the best reputation in the market, and the way you figure that out is just really by spending a lot of time in the space, doing a lot of references, you know, using your network and you know having a network to use in this space to talk around, speak with entrepreneurs, yeah, really get the inside scoop of what's going on behind the scenes versus. Maybe what uh, you know, public facing some of these firms might might want want to have you think, and then you know really dig in. Okay, you know who are the best entrepreneurs going to work with, and then you know talking through portfolio construction. You know, are these firms more focused on equity versus token? What part of the underlying ecosystem are they focused on? You know, are they purely focused on the crypto side of things and enabling crypto? You know, are they much more focused on the Web 3.0 side of things, and you know maybe less of the financial aspects of the industry and you know we don't inherently have a a preference on that you know we kind of want to provide exposure to all the above so we're see it as more of a portfolio building exercise but you know understanding what's their thesis you know how does that align with our view of the industry and you know similarly looking through portfolio construction so you know how how are they going to build a portfolio how many companies are going to invest in you know what stage they investing in what type of ownership are they looking for you know, how do they think about investing in this space and some of the, you know, nuanced things around, you know, if they're doing token investing, for example, how are they going to manage the portfolio in terms of reserves, in terms of recycling? You know, how are they going to you know, reinvest versus distributing those proceeds? You know, how much are they going to be long-term vo- focused versus trading on that side of it? And, you know, really digging in on on all of kind of that, like, 
kind of boring portfolio construction, but I'd say that piece of it is is very important. You know, we also have a global focus. So, you know, we want to provide exposure to funds that are investing around the world. So, you know, that means we will invest in funds not just based in the US, but both in Europe and Asia. And, you know, trying to get a sense of, you know, who who is investing in those markets, you know, what is their focus geographically, and kind of making sure we have exposure to, you know, innovation in the space that is occurring not just in the US, but on a global basis. You know, if you look at the the funds in this space, I mean, it's really a market of emerging managers. So one of the big differences looking at funds in this space versus, you know, doing general venture investing is you don't have the breadth of track record to go off of, you know, where you can say, okay, well, you've been doing this for 10 or 15 years, you've built out this long term, you know, with a lot of realizations, track record, and, you know, clearly, this is highly repeatable. Most of these funds haven't been around for more than a couple of years. And even the ones who have, who have been around for a longer time, I mean, the market's evolved so significantly since that time that, you know, it's a very different environment that they're investing in, you know, very different competitive dynamic today versus where it was early on. So, you know, you can't just rely on track record as much as you might, you know, in the broader venture world. So you really do have to dig in, talk to a lot of people, figure out who's seeing deal flow, what's the reputation, you know, who, who do these folks like working with, who post-investment is doing a lot of helpful stuff in terms of helping with customer introductions, participating in the various networks that they're they're, they're investing in, you know, taking a more creative, forward-looking approach from that perspective. And, you know, really just the only way to, to figure that out is just a lot of conversations, you know, a lot of references, you know, in particular offsheet references versus just, you know, the ones that they they give you, of course. And, you know, there's, there's no consistent dance around how long that process takes. You know, it's such a relationship based business. I mean, sometimes that can take a number of years before you get comfortable investing in someone. Um, and that, you know, it's kind of a, just a long relationship building exercise. You know, sometimes maybe that process takes a couple of months where you dig in, you really go deep on diligence and you end up deciding to, to work with them. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely a pretty intensive process though, going through that. Brooke, I love that overview of the process. I have a lot of notes and bullets. I'm going to head to the show notes on that. I appreciate it. Uh, really, really enlightening. And I guess the other question for you there, not to gloss over how, how good your response was, but just to ask another question on that thread. Yeah. The other kind of question there is, there's a lot of differences in the crypto fund world versus the traditional fund world. Like, you know, people notice things like, you know, seven years and two, two one-year extensions doesn't make sense anymore. So we're having funds that provide redemptions earlier and liquidity earlier and different fee structures. Are you noticing a lot of differences on the fund structuring side versus, you know, your past roles? Uh, yes and no. So I, I guess for, for those firms that are truly just traditional closed end venture funds, you know, most of them look like traditional venture funds and that, you know, have pretty similar structures and terms and stuff like that. You know, there are some venture funds that do have shorter terms. So, you know, you're seeing, you know, closed end venture funds, but that have five or seven year terms, but but they're still doing early stage equity investing. So, you know, I, I know certainly not everyone in the industry uh, agrees with me on this, but I mean, I think really those firms will, their, their real investment periods and how long they hold assets will be just the same as any other fund. I mean, if you're doing early stage investing, some companies will get sold sooner than others, but there's going to be some companies in your portfolio that you know end up being in there for 10, 12 years before they have an exit. So you know, even if you have a shorter term, it doesn't inherently change how long your fund is going to exist. 
And you definitely shouldn't be just, you know, okay, well, after 10 years, I'm going to sell everything on a secondary basis. That's not really a, a proper way to invest either. So, you know, you are seeing different terms, but I think, frankly, you know, it's, it's more, uh, you know, it's good for marketing, right? The idea of a shorter period, even if technically it, it's no different than a firm that has a 10-year term, you know, let's say a firm with a 7-year term, for example. And, you know, I guess technically it can be good for management fees because if you have, a fund that has a five or seven year term, their management fees might step down a little quicker and end sooner than a fund with a 10 year term. Although, you know, the difference between those two is going to be, you know, not, uh, not drastic in terms of its impact on overall returns. Um, no, I, for sure. Yeah. I, mean, I think the biggest thing you're seeing is like these hybrid funds that call themselves venture funds, but, you know, really they're structured as, you know, really just less liquid hedge funds, right? So they have redemptions of some sort. You know, even if they're they're longer than usual, you know, typically they have to side pocket illiquid investments, and by default they have to do, you know, let's say 70-80% in liquid crypto investments. So, you know, we we don't invest in those structures. You know, I think that this is best, you know, venture investing in this space is best done through an illiquid fund model and you know, doing a lot of illiquid stuff through a more liquid structure you know, leads to certain, you know, misalignments and structural concerns over time. For sure. Now that, that makes a lot of sense. And the other question for you is, you know, you said it's really a relationship game at the end of the day. Are there certain things that are automatic turnoffs for you when you're looking? I know you kind of, you know, alluded to this earlier, but is there anything or any advice that you can give new funds launching on what they could do to help convince somebody like you to invest? It's a good question. <laughs> uh, you know, from a relationship standpoint, you know, like be focused on the long term. I mean, most people you talk to are not going to invest in your first fund just by default. That's just kind of a fact. So, you know, obviously you want them to invest in your first fund, but, you know, take a long term view of the relationship, right? These things often play out over a number of years. And, you know, people who, you know, aren't investors in your first or second fund might be big investors in the future. And, you know, the relationship that you, you know, the time you spent building those rela- those relationships, you know, in the early years of your firm, you know, end up being crucial to your long-term success. You know, so it can be difficult to, you know, focus on that long-term when you're so focused on like, okay, well, I got to get this first fund raised and I-, I need people who can give me capital now. So, you know, certainly don't neglect that aspect of it. But, you know, we want, we want to find folks who have, you know, proven, you know, proven their ability to be successful in doing this, right? So, you know, if if there's no track record and you know limited operational experience, you know, that's going to be a pretty difficult sell. You know, if you don't have a true, you know, competitive advantage in the space, you know, that's going to be uh, very difficult for us. You know, it's hard to hard to prove that you can be successful as an investor in this space if you have not yet been an investor in this space. So obviously, you know, there's always exceptions, but you know, that piece of it certainly is important for us. No, that that's fair. It, it makes me laugh. Sometimes I see memes around and and jokes and it's like, you know, 20 years experience required and the space isn't even that old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, to the earlier point around emerging managers, you know, like the, the, the type of track record and kind of what your expectations are in terms of historical investment experience and track record are certainly different in this space, just inherently, you know, given, you know, Bitcoin itself is only, you know, 
I guess, a little over 10 years old. So a, a five-year track record is almost like a 20-year track record in the traditional venture world, kind of by comparison. Yeah, definitely, definitely feels like it. And Brooke, my last question for you is focused around the relationship between you and some of the VCs you invest in. You know, we hear a lot about the relationships between VCs and kind of founders. You know, we hear all like the troubles and the crazy stories, but what's the relationship like between a fund to fund and like the actual VCs you're investing? And I'm sure it's probably similar. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's very, you know, collegial and obviously we want each other to be success, you know, successful. So just as a venture, you know, a, a VC wants their portfolio company to be successful. I mean, obviously because they want that for them, but also because that obviously makes them more successful. It's the same thing as a fund of funds, right? You know, we want these underlying funds that we work with to be as successful as possible. You know, they're, they're friends of ours. You know, we, people we like a lot and enjoy working with, but obviously that also drives our own returns. So, you know, we spend a lot of time, you know, from relationship building perspective, just spending time with these folks and getting to know them well personally. You know, we do everything we can to be helpful as an LP, right? So, you know, a, a lot of LPs out there are, you know, I'd say far too passive in terms of their approach. You know, they get quarterly reports and as long as things are going good, they'll continue giving money. You know, we want to be really value added as an LP, right? So we want to be helpful with deal flow introductions. We want to help introduce the VCs that we work with to LPs. We want to help them, you know, get to know corporates in our network who could be customers and partners and acquirers for their portfolio companies, like anything we can do to make them more successful. And, you know, obviously, you know, we want to be helpful to them, but it's not purely out of our own kindness, right? That also makes us more successful. And, you know, if, if in the future, you know, the top funds in this space are going to be significantly over allocated. You know, people are going to be fighting allocation for these funds, just like people are in Benchmark and Sequoia and stuff like that. And, you know, if we can have those really strong, you know, mutually beneficial relationships, you know, that's going to be very good for our ability to get, you know, as much allocation as possible in those very oversubscribed funds, you know, looking forward. So, you know, it's also, it also helps us from a fund of funds perspective to make sure that we're as successful as possible and drive returns for our own LPs. No, it makes a lot of sense. Brooke, it's been excellent having you on. I've, I haven't had a guest on that's had your you know, caliber of traditional VC experience now in crypto and able to share kind of those two differing worlds and everything you're doing here. So just let everybody know where they could learn more about you and Hut Capital if they're interested in reaching out. Yeah, certainly. Website's www.hutcapital.com. Uh, we've also done some writing on Medium, as you alluded to earlier, which is at, at Hut Cap or actually at Hut Capital, so medium.com slash at Hut Capital. You know, feel free to find us on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. And yeah, thanks so much, Tom, for having me on. It was a pleasure. Yeah, Brooke, of course. It's great having you on. Definitely have you on again soon. And for everybody listening, those links that Brooke mentioned are in the show notes. So just scroll down, check out the site, uh, let Brooke know what you think. And Brooke, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.